Hello and welcome to this week's book club. I have to confess that if there was to be a sequel to the Hamlet podcast, it would concentrate either on Macbeth or on this week's play, King Lear. To me, this is Shakespeare's greatest play, one that I find profoundly troubling, moving and interesting. I won't be so bold as to claim that I get King Lear, but I found it rather more accessible or understandable than I did Hamlet, which is why I started exploring the latter, and indeed why, by extension, we are here today. I deliberately kept the play for the later end of our book club schedule, because in April it felt like everyone was talking about how Shakespeare wrote this play while the plague raged and the theatres were closed. I didn't want to think about it back then. Alas, the play still rages and the theatres are still closed, but Lear feels a little more doable in the shorter nights of the early autumn. King Lear gets likened to other figures at various points in history and literature. Some liken his sufferings to those of Job in the Bible, some equate his greatness with that of King Solomon, also in the Bible. And so it goes, we see parallels drawn between various elements of this play throughout its history, all the way as far as equating the bleak nihilism of the text with the works of Samuel Beckett in the mid-20th century. King Lear speaks to us at all times. Even today, the play can be framed to be extremely relevant, a play about madness in the face of the terrifying forces of nature, or about the splitting up of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, or about a power-crazed father who feeds on the fake adulation of his vicious and power-hungry children. King Lear is all of these things, and a good deal more. For my money, King Lear is one of the best constructed plays that Shakespeare ever wrote. Its opening scene is, to me at least, the most exciting scene of them all. We get the various introductions, we see the two major families introduced, we get Lear's bizarre and catastrophic competition between his daughters, we see love and banishment, and true natures are revealed. And through it all, Edmund watches. He watches everything like a chess champion, and when all is reduced to chaos, he speaks and reveals his intentions and his wicked plans. It's an enormous, lengthy scene, but it's brilliant. And the detail in the language also lays the groundwork for much of how the story will unfold. Words about looking, about seeing more clearly, pave a way for the horrific blindness that will happen literally to Gloucester, but will infect almost everyone. By the end of the play, Lear's two older daughters will have been reduced to squinting adders. Meanwhile, the youngest, Cordelia, answers her father's request for proclamations of her love with nothing. And that nothing sets in motion a train of annihilation, of reduction to nothing, that will reduce her and her father and most of the cast to nothing and death by the end of the play. Lear is a man full of great passions. He seems to engender them in others too. Nobody in this play is indifferent to Lear. His two vicious daughters and those in their orbits seem to hate him. But the fool and Kent and of course Cordelia all love him very dearly. I often wonder how we're supposed to understand the affection that they show, given how he starts the play as a seemingly vain ruler and goes very quickly 
to very angry. Thereafter, we don't get many reasons to sympathise with him. He rages and is a terrible imposition when he visits Regan and Goneril with his unruly retinue. We aren't necessarily supposed to like these ugly sisters at any point, but when Lear and his hundred knights are causing havoc in their homes, it's not too hard to sympathise with the women, having to put up with their elderly father and all of his drunken friends. The lady's lack of filial piety does quash such sympathy pretty quickly, as it becomes apparent that these two women will stop at nothing to gain power. Lear's course of annihilation, of turning himself into nothing, begins perhaps even before Cordelia's fateful answer. He starts the play with a plan to retire and split up the kingdom, handing over his crown. This is the beginning of the end. When he fights with his daughters, he rails that he wouldn't even bother staying under a roof anymore and chooses instead to brave the elements. He divests himself of his crown, his family, and now any form of shelter, and of course he's forced to give up his huge retinue of followers too. By the time he goes out and braves the elements, he's got only his fool and the disguised Kent to keep him company. Soon enough he loses even his mind, as his wits and his body take a battering in the terrible storm that Shakespeare tears through the play. While all of this is going on, we have an alternative story, a parallel family, that is likewise torn apart by the play. Gloucester is the first father we meet, and very quickly we learn that he has two sons, one of them legitimate. Edmund, the villain mentioned earlier, is the illegitimate one, and Edgar, the younger brother, is the societally acceptable one. Just as sisters are set against sisters in Lear's family, so brothers are pitted against one another in the Gloucester storyline. Edmund has the upper hand and he gets things in motion. He forges a letter implicating Edgar, and so the legitimate son is out of the way. He also manages to seduce both of Lear's wicked daughters, and eventually they'll fight and die for him. The world that Edmund is describing and bringing into existence is one of societal revolutions. We already have sisters and brothers fighting with each other. We also have children fighting against their parents, and by the end of it we'll even have servants rebelling and fighting against their masters, even if they die in the attempt. At the heart of all of this, Edmund is a very seductive character. But it's Edgar that is probably the most difficult role in the play. Bad enough that he's banished, he comparably annihilates himself, in that he also reduces himself to nothing, stripping down and calling himself poor Tom, behaving like an escaped madman terrorising the countryside. It's never quite clear, to me at least, what the line is between madness and lucidity in this play, and there are great chasms of darkness and terror to explore in it, making the role of Edgar particularly difficult. Lear's fool is likewise a character of great perception who blurs the lines between wisdom and mockery and between clarity and madness. When Lear and his fool meet poor Tom, Edgar, out in the wilderness during the storm, there's an extraordinary scene between these three characters that all exist somewhere between madness and sanity, between kindness and despair. The odd camaraderie between these people who, in that moment, have nothing but each other, is an amazing scene, made all the more bracing and fascinating by the fact that none of them seems to be fully in his right mind. 
The storm is the play's great leveller. It is the nadir of Lear's awful descent, from his removal of the crown all the way as far as the end of the storm feels like the extent of that journey. One might imagine that perhaps he'd climb back up thereafter, coming to his senses, literally and figuratively, and putting things to rights. In other versions of the story this was somewhat the case. Certainly in the source material it wasn't nearly as bleak as what Shakespeare tells us. In the late 17th century, an Irish playwright called Nahum Tate rewrote the Shakespeare play with a happy ending, letting Cordelia live and marry Edgar. I've never seen this version performed, but I think that it could only work as an academic exercise. After the horrors of the 20th century, King Lear has become a small insight into the bleakest depths of the human experience, a lens through which we can try to come to terms with the cruelty of life. Tagging a happy ending onto this bleakest of plays would seem almost unbearably trite. A great many of this play's most memorable lines are to do with the cruelty and indifference of the universe or the gods. Probably the most famous and the most perfect summation of this cruelty are as follows. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. It doesn't get much bleaker than that. Earlier in the play, Edmund has one of the most bitter descriptions of human nature you're likely to read. He's talking about how people like to blame the stars or their horoscopes for their personalities and their lot in life. He says, This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behaviour, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting in, and admirable evasions of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. In this, he's rather like a brother to Cassius, who also protested that the fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. Edmund is up there with Iago in competition for the most wicked character in Shakespeare, but he's smart, and like the best villains, he talks us through his schemes in a very entertaining way. Unlike Iago, Shakespeare gives Edmund a glimmer of repentance, even after all he's done. He tries to save Lear and Cordelia at the very end of the play, but it's too little, too late. Cordelia is killed, and this is the final straw, and Lear dies of grief. One popular question is whether the fool and Cordelia are connected. Perhaps they were played by the same actor, since they never appear on stage together. I've seen this done on stage, and by a brilliant actress too, but it added much less to the story than I thought it was going to. Yes, Lear does lament when he sees Cordelia that his poor fool is hanged, but that's about as much of a hint as Shakespeare gives us. So many characters change costume in the play, and there's so much talk of garments and of clothing. No wonder, when so many of the characters assume disguises and new identities just in order to survive this bleak universe. With all of that going on, there's perhaps room for Claudia to dress herself up and be the fool, but it doesn't really work, I don't think. 
whether or not she's been played by the fool, Cordelia's death is the bleakest moment in the play. There has been some hope of a future, of redemption and reconstruction, when she's reunited with her father in those very touching scenes late in the play. When Lear enters with her corpse, it's almost unbearable. But that's maybe the point. Shakespeare takes us to the worst imaginable suffering, and then we are released from it by the end. To me, one of the most amazing performances of the text of King Lear happened not in a production of the play itself, but within another story. Alan Bennett uses the play within his own play about a mad king, The Madness of George III, and has the king read scenes from the play with some of his closest courtiers. The scene in which Nigel Hawthorne, as the king, reads Pray do not mock me, and thou art a soul in bliss, are very special indeed. Hawthorne's performance in the play, and its subsequent film, led eventually to his playing King Lear for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and, while I try scrupulously to avoid plugs like this, if you'd like to read more about that production, you can read all about it in my book. King Lear has understandably inspired a huge range of other stories. Currently, the television series Succession is drawing several parallels. It's about a media mogul and the attempts of his vicious children to divide his empire. The King Lear story has been recreated in novels, other plays, films and of course the occasional opera. But for me there's still a chilling power that remains at the heart of Shakespeare's version. A few years ago, James Shapiro released a new book called The Year of Lear, a kind of a follow-up to his earlier study of the year 1599. In the newer book, he discusses the year 1606, during which Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth. It does seem extraordinary that Shakespeare managed to write these three masterpieces within such a short time, but Shapiro lays it all out as beautifully as ever. One question that always haunts me about this play, and yes, I'm indulging in the hopeless fantasy of imagining Shakespeare's life reflected in his works, is what might have been going on at home for Shakespeare to have written such a horrific breakdown of the relationship between a father and his daughters? Regan and Goneril are two of the most spectacularly wicked people in all of Shakespeare's plays, these are expressly portrayed as women intent on destroying their father and enjoying their inheritance from him. Given that, in years to come, a good few plays, including The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Pericles and others, will all feature much gentler emotional relationships between fathers and daughters, many of them reunions, King Lear is a bit of a shock. It's always tempting to wonder if there was anything in his private life that might have inspired such venom, and how things might have changed over the following years to ease the tensions and allow for those late father-daughter plays. The curses that King Lear hurls, at his daughters, no less, are among the very worst that Shakespeare ever wrote. Real blood-curdling stuff. For all that, there's even more hair-raising shenanigans to come in next week's play. We're going to return to King Henry VI for part two, which, spoiler alert, has even more demonic misbehaviour and a lady who traffics with the dead. Seems only fitting to look at this spooky behaviour in the run-up to Halloween, so I hope you'll have a read of it and join me next time. 
The Hamlet podcast continues every Sunday and these book club episodes will continue on Saturdays until we've gone through the first folio. For more information and all the previous episodes, you can visit the website, thehamletpodcast.com. I'll speak to you next time.